we're seeing these similar sort of ideas coming up that people consistently hold this view that their that their body is damaged in some way pain will always get worse over time that weight bearing through a joint for example that that has changes in it is going to cause more damage to that joint that exercise isn't useful because it can't restore joint tissues or joint structures and so surgery is going to be an inevitable occurrence down the line we're going to mm. need surgery eventually that was dr sam bunsley and this is the empowered beyond pain podcast proudly brought to you by body logic physiotherapy Welcome to episode 10. Wow, double digits already. This week, Professor Peter O'Sullivan, Dr. J.P. Canero and I were joined by researcher Dr. Sam Bunsley online. We discussed a fantastic recent paper all about how beliefs influence pain that they co-authored together. In that paper, they used a clinical case to illustrate the critical role that beliefs can have on a person's journey from acute pain to ongoing pain and then from pain and disability to recovery, which we discuss in this episode. That case was Jamie, and he has actually appeared on the podcast before in episode 4 and 5, and is a guest in an upcoming episode discussing how pain flare-ups don't necessarily mean you're damaging yourself. He has a great patient story on the Pain Health website, which I highly recommend you watch. It's one of the most common resources I find myself sending to patients. You can find the link for that video as well as the beliefs paper we discussed today and much more on the show notes page, which is www.bodylogic.physio forward slash podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and remember to ask, is there more to pain than damage? So welcome everyone. We're very lucky here to have with us uh, Samantha Barnsley. Uh, we're going to go straight into, rather than me introducing her, I'm going to let her speak um, about herself and introduce herself. So welcome, Sam. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for inviting me along today. A pleasure to be here. Um, so about myself, well, I, um, I'm a physiotherapist. So I did my um, undergrad physio degree in New Zealand, so in Otago. Um, so I'm a fellow Kiwi, like, like Pete. That was quite a while ago now. Um, so I worked for around 10 years in musculoskeletal clinical practice, um, and sort of in New Zealand and, and in the UK. Um, and I guess the thing that always stood out for me in clinical practice were, um, were very much the patient's stories. That's a bit of clinical practice that I really enjoyed, um, more than anything else was listening to people. And I think that it, it became really apparent to me quite early on that, that, therapeutic value of that, of just sitting in space and, and letting somebody tell you their story and feeling listened to. Um, so that was definitely what I was passionate about. Um, sort of life circumstances took me around about and I landed in, um, in Perth and knocked on Pete's front door. Um, and we sat down and had a coffee, sort of out of the blue and started talking a little bit about you know, what I was interested in. And, and I was kind of keen to get into the research space. Um, again, just always with this focus of, of the patient's story and the patient voice. Um, and that was at that sort of time was, was really missing in the literature. There wasn't an awful lot in the musculoskeletal space that was really um, pri you know, prioritizing or valuing that patient perspective. Um, we, I ended up doing a PhD looking at uh, pain-related fear from the perspective of, of people experiencing chronic low back pain. Um, and 
through through in that PhD, I really used a lot of qualitative methods. So um, again, that was a relatively new methodology in that field, but was um, something that really became central to to all my research. So since then, I have been applying qualitative methods to to prioritize that patient voice in, in various different musculoskeletal conditions. So um, where it began, sort of the, my journey in research began with low back pain. I've since moved into the arthritis space. Um, and I'm now working as a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Melbourne in the Department of Surgery. And so we mostly do osteoarthritis research. And I use qualitative methods, so interview-based methods, to look at um, things or explore things like patient beliefs around what osteoarthritis is, um, how people make decisions about treatment, um, their experiences of care, how they perceive their treatment outcomes, those sort of things. Um, yeah, and so that's sort of taken me to, to where I am at this point, now a couple of years into my, my um, postdoctoral position. And... That's probably me. Yeah, awesome. And um, I think you're being very modest there. You've picked up a fair few accolades along the way. Um, perhaps, Pete, you can jump in and, and um, talk to um, some of the yeah, awards and, and uh, positions that Sam has, uh, or Sam's research has taken her. Um, well, I think Sam could do that. But I think um, one of the things that you allude to, Sam, is that when you came to this space, um, the the kind of um, uh, qualitative research was relatively relatively new in terms of musculoskeletal pain. And, um, you know, that's really changed. You know, I, th I think some of your work has, um, has gained significant recognition and, and particularly in the orthopedic space recently. I don't know if you want to talk a bit about that because um, that seems like a really um, wonderful development in an area that's so biomedical, biomedically and maybe structurally focused to actually become more person-centred in its orientation. Yeah, sure. So certainly that's right. I mean, I work with orthopaedic surgeons and it's really quite unusual that they have embraced qualitative... Well, our image of an orthopedic surgeon is perhaps not being very generous to orthopedic surgeons, but was this very much the idea of a biomedical viewpoint mm -hmm. and that um, the sort of biopsychosocial and uh, viewpoint of understanding the patient voice and that being important was, was something that was relatively new in this field. Um, but all the sort of hurdles that I've had along the way to publish some of this work is now getting that recognition. Um, and I have just recently been appointed as um, an associate editor on clinical orthopedics and related research. Um, so they are really keen to profile the patient voice more in, in this journal. And um, that's a really exciting opportunity for us, I think. So really keen to hear more of the patient voice and how that using qualitative methods or interview-based research can advance the field in, in ways that otherwise wouldn't be possible. So this idea that starting to recognize that not everything that that is important can be countable. So not everything that counts is countable. Um, and that we need to, to, to explore other methods to be able to tap into some of these more social processes that can't be quantified, that can't be measured, can't be counted. Um, and that that's important as well. So, so that's a really exciting opportunity um, that has, has recently come to fruition. Um, I have had um, some, some success with, with grants as well, and I think that that's starting to also recognise um, within the system the importance of, of qualitative methods of the patient's voice. So things are starting to turn a little bit, um, but certainly it has been relatively slow moving to get acceptance with some of these alternative methods that aren't um, 
typically what we think about research and 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 uh, in a very biomedical field such as musculoskeletal um, research. Yeah, absolutely. And Sam, could you just quickly, um, I suppose, define or, or contrast qualitative research compared to quantitative research just for the, the listeners? Sure. So I think it comes back to that idea that, you know, some things can be counted and it's important that we, we measure things and that we count things and that's an important part of research. But there are some things that can't be accessed through these countable methods. So when we're thinking about someone's um, how someone decides on what treatment they're going to undergo, um, how, how surgeons make decisions about who they're going to operate on. Um, it's the idea that we can take evidence-based practice, but how do we apply that in practice? And, and understanding some of those, those social processes, because they are social processes, they involve a variety of contextual sort of factors. It's, those are the sort of um, research questions that are that we can use with qualitative methods. So that involves us um, interviewing, typically interviewing um, people that have a, a carefully selected group of people who can give us rich insights into their experience. So it's not that we're going out and trying to sample a random um, selection of, of the population that we can then generalize these findings to. But we're really trying to select people that can, can give us that rich, deep understanding and really try to delve into their experiences um, in order for us to, to, to understand these experiences better um, and really adopting their perspective here. So we're not trying to put our pre-existing ideas on what they're saying. It's not a survey where we think, um, okay, beliefs are important. Um, do you believe this, yes or no, or rank this on a scale from zero to 10? That would be coming from, from our viewpoint and asking the patients what we think they're thinking. But in, we're flipping it on its head and we're asking the patients, well, tell us what's important, tell us what you're thinking. And then really just um, flipping things on its head, I guess, and, and profiling their voice in what we publish. Yeah, exactly, giving, giving the patient the voice, right? They're trying to hear that, that, those stories. Um, so we're very lucky to have uh, three of the author or the three authors of a recent paper that was published in the Brazilian um, Physical Therapy Journal, um, JP Canero, Peter O'Sullivan and Sam Bunsley here. Um, the paper was a masterclass titled Beliefs About the Body and Pain, the Critical Role of Musculoskeletal Pain Management. Um, and what I kind of wanted to do was sort of talk about um, the reasons behind the paper and then kind of I guess, digest it and, and make it digestible for our listeners. So um, can we start perhaps um, sort of just looking at the, or answering the question of, of what are beliefs and, and how are they formed? Maybe I, I can jump in there. So I, beliefs can be defined in various ways, but we can, be, we can think of them as a sort of a, a fundamental truth or deeply held opinions. Um, and they help us make sense of a situation and help us decide what to do in a given situation. Um, so some of you might have heard me talk about the common sense model before, and this is something I developed in my PhD. Um, and we found this a really useful framework to, to understand the beliefs of people experiencing musculoskeletal pain. Um, so the model tells us that when we experience a, a symptom of pain, we, we try to make sense of that symptom by drawing on a set of beliefs about it. Um, so this set of beliefs comprises of our beliefs about um, the identity of the symptom, so what we think the symptom is. Um, our beliefs about the cause of the symptom, um, our beliefs about the consequences that the symptom could have, what we think we can do about the symptom and how long we think it's going to last. 
Um, so these beliefs are, are formed by our, our previous experiences of that symptom, by observing others with it, and what we might have heard about it. So maybe from the media or from clinicians or other sources. So based on this set of beliefs, we then make a decision about um, what we're going to do about that symptom. And so this is called what we call problem-solving behavior. Um, so let's say we think we have a slip disc um, that's caused by lifting. Um, we believe that that slip disc can push on the spinal cord and that could leave us paralyzed. Um, so based on that set of beliefs, what, what would be a common sense response to what is quite a threatening set of beliefs um, would be to avoid lifting, to avoid something that we think is going to make that disc bulge worse. So at the same time, though, this set of beliefs can give rise to an emotional response. So symptoms which we think are, will have severe consequences and, for example, end up in a wheelchair or that we think we have little control over, they'll typically elicit a fear response. And so in some cases, our behavior then can be driven by this emotional response or, and typically fear avoidance behavior rather than problem-solving behavior in some cases. And this can be particularly the case when our problem-solving problem behavior is no longer working. So sometimes we get stuck in, in a cycle there. We say we've been avoiding lifting now for six weeks, or maybe we've been doing core strengthening exercises for three months and we still think we've got a, a weak core or we're still experiencing the symptom or the symptoms are getting worse. Um, and so this can, can create then also this, this, this uncertainty, this lack of... Um, of, of controllability over our symptom and we can we can then elicit that fear response um, there as well. I don't know if it's helpful maybe to, to illustrate this with, a, with an example. I know in our paper we, yeah. we draw an example of Jamie. Um, Pete, do you want to? Yeah, so um, Jamie was uh, a chap who you can actually see his story on the Pain Health website. There are two Jamies. He's Jamie E. Um, and uh, Jamie tells his story as someone who, who hurt his back lifting, a bit like what you're saying, Sam, developed back pain. Um, his pain didn't go away. He ended up having a scan, told he had a disc prolapse, um, had a variety of treatments, was off work, uh, became very fearful, guarded, um, kind of engaged in protective, you know, habits like sitting really straight, which he was advised to do, working on his core. When that didn't ha when that didn't work, he ended up having um, a discectomy, so spinal surgery, which didn't help. And, and in fact, um, he described that his pain kind of deteriorated after that. And he was um, at a point where he was um, uh, had really lost control, uh, his sense of control over his pain in his life. So. Um, the things he really valued was physical activity, which he described as being very important for his mental health and his physical health, well-being. Um, and he was told he would never run again, never lift again. Um, he had um, told he had degenerate discs um, and, uh, and that he should, it was dangerous for him to lift. Um, he'd become very, very fearful. And he said, you know, terrified of bending. Um, and his spinal structures became very sensitive. Uh, and he guarded his back the whole time. And he was at a point essentially where he believed the only thing that was left for him, the only option for him was to have a spinal fusion um, uh, to fix his problem. So from the perspective of uh, what you just described, Sam, he was someone who had been told he was damaged um, and uh, that he, his belief was that was 
that the only thing that could fix him was to have his spine fused, to have those damaged structures fixed together. Uh, and uh, his strategies of controlling his pain was to avoid movement, activity, loading, exercise, work. Uh, he spent his day lying down. Uh, he was very, doing very little and he became very frightened and depressed and stressed that was not sleeping. So he got stuck in this horrible cocktail of um, that was linked to a belief, but also these actions that just weren't working for him. So he tried so hard to work on his core and his posture and do all the things he'd been taught and it didn't work. He felt like he was getting worse. Uh, and so his, his story is kind of like the worst case scenario of where that common sense model just falls apart with someone with pain, where the belief drives um, unhelpful behaviors and emotions that leaves the person sort of stuck. Uh, and maybe we can come back to Jamie's story later around um, the kind of positive influence that you might have around those beliefs because Jamie didn't go for the, the surgery. He still has discs that don't look perfect on a scan. He still has degenerate discs, but he's back living again and engaging in movement and activity and work and loading and sport and weights and playing with his kids and his emotional responses are very different. Yep, absolutely. Um, one of the things that strikes me with Jamie's story is that, that he develops quite biomedical beliefs or what we would label as biomedical beliefs and how these can um, often perpetuate the, the, the care and the advice that we're given um, and that people go under. So I was, I was hopeful that maybe we could talk about um, comparing sort of or biomedical beliefs or how biomedical beliefs may result down that path and perhaps what other more helpful beliefs might be appropriate to substitute in, in that case. So Sam, maybe you can start. Sure. Yeah. I wonder if it maybe it, it, it might help to have a little background to these biomedical beliefs, perhaps, so we can have a little discussion about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a little history lesson there, but, but I think what we're finding for our research is that um, all throughout Western cultures, the predominant framework of the way we think about our health and our bodies um, and pain is through a very biomedical lens. So through this biomedical lens, pain is the result of bodily damage and the pain experience is directly relates to the amount of, of bodily damage. So we think of the, the hand on the hot plate and the longer we leave it on the hot plate, the more damage and hence the thinking goes, the more pain. Um, and this model has been around for um, over 400 years. So it dates right back to the time of Descartes in the 1600s. Um, who, who first described this idea of dualism. So the separation of the person into two parts, the body and, and the mind, the mental and the physical. Um, and, and way back then, this, this dualism model was useful because it allowed the doctors to, to sort of dominate or own or manage the body while the church could still retain control over, over the soul. Um, what this model then created was, was the idea that the body is a machine then comprised of, of different parts. So we might have our musculoskeletal system, we've got our cardiovascular system, for example, um, and each part can, can break down over time um, or can give rise to separate disease entities or health conditions. So we might think of cardiovascular disease, of osteoarthritis, for example. And each of these diseases then requires specialist medical intervention um, or mechanics to then fix them, so an orthopedic surgeon or a cardiologist. And, and so the, the doctor or the clinician becomes this expert that can see inside the body 
and is charged with identifying that disease process and then fixing that disease process. Um, so, so really that, that idea that we have an objective sign of a disease then means that um, it can be fixed. But if we can't find that sign of medical disease, of, of objective disease, then that person becomes sort of morally weak in some way. Um, and, and this model, this dualism model, means that suffering, I mean, suffering is invisible, um, but it's subjective and it's not really within the scope of, of medical profession, of clinicians to, to fix. Um, so this has been around for, as I said, around 400 years. It's still the predominant model that exists in our worldview. We learn it from a very, very young age with our hand on the hot plate. Um, but it does cause tension for people experiencing something like, um, for example, non-specific low back pain. Um, and we first sort of described this, this tension or as a group when we first started looking at this, we, we did a systematic review where we, we pulled together, um, we looked at the literature and we pulled together all the studies that had explored uh, the experience of non-specific low back pain um, from the perspective of individuals, so qualitative studies. Um, and from the perspective of the patients, we showed that most of the participants in, in those included studies really had that the predominant view was this biomedical view. But the problem was when they weren't receiving, but they were all experiencing non-specific low back pain. So there was really not that pathoanatomical explanation for the pain that they were really searching for. And that created problems for people because they felt like the absence of that, that diagnostic label meant that their, the legitimacy of their pain was being questioned by others or was being doubted by others. And certainly since some of the qualitative work we've also done within this group and other groups has shown that that, that, that is probably a justifiable perspective that in that clinicians have also described in interview studies um, some stigmatization of patients that lack that biomedical explanation for their pain. So, but beyond sort of problems with, with stigmatization, the, the difficulty is, is that when you don't have a biomedical explanation, it's really difficult to then enter the diagnosis, treatment, cure pathway. Um, so that creates real problems for people. If they can't get that diagnosis, they become very stuck trying to either search for that diagnosis or just waiting until maybe that diagnosis will, will suddenly appear, um, it'll become big enough or bad enough to be able to be, to be observed. Um, and in the meantime, their lives can really, we described lives on hold. They can just mm -hmm. put everything on pause until they get that, that diagnosis. Um, so what we're seeing is moving on from sort of low back pain is, is the work we've done in arthritis. So people with knee osteoarthritis and with hip pain, we're seeing these similar sort of ideas coming up that people consistently hold this view that their, that their body is damaged in some way, um, that, um, that pain will always get worse over time, that weight bearing through a joint, for example, that, that has changes in it is going to cause more damage to that joint, um, that exercise isn't useful because it can't restore um, joint tissues or joint structures, and so surgery is going to be an inevitable um, occurrence down the line. We're going to mm -hmm. need surgery eventually. So this is something that we're repeatedly seeing in, in these different musculoskeletal populations.
So yeah. if I could just pop uh, my thought in here, because what, what you're highlighting there, Sam, is really interesting. And just for the listeners, non-specific low back pain, mm-hmm. it's a kind of label that researchers and some clinicians might consider for someone who presents with a back pain problem who has a scan and the scan doesn't demonstrate something on it that explains their pain experience. So it's kind of a default label, uh, which leaves people in a bit of a vacuum. Um, whereas something like arthritis, you have a demonstrable um, something on a scan that may have an association with that. And JP, I'm, I'm interested in your perspective on that because you also have, did your PhD in back pain, uh, but have now moved into the arthritis space. And you've got these two kind of difficulties where there's someone who is looking for um, evidence of damage but can't mm-hmm. find it on one space, which is the back pain example you give, Sam. And then you've got an an example of someone who's got a diagnostic label of damage, which has other consequences um, around how someone might respond to um, that label. And and I'm interested in probably both of your experiences, but maybe JP, you would like to talk to that. Yeah, and it's it's a great, um, it's a great point for discussion. And probably something that as a clinician and researcher, I noticed the difference, uh, the similarities, but also the difference in the, in the patient's perspective. Um, so with, with back pain, when they, when they don't have this, like you said, you know, they're searching for a reason for their pain and their scans don't match it, uh, they, may be, um, <clears throat> they may be presented with comments such as, uh, when I look at your scans, you shouldn't be feeling the pain that you have or the scans don't explain the pain that you have. And that plays with that um, lack of validation that, that Sam was talking about before. Uh, and that really leaves people uh, wondering about their, their condition. Um, and on the other hand, you get patients with uh, osteoarthritis that they put a plain X-ray and they, demonst- they show to the patient and say, look, you can clearly see that there's no space here in this side of the joint. So it becomes very evident and very apparent that you don't have pain. I'm sorry, that you have pain because your structure is not, um, is not good enough. So on one hand, you have a patient that, you know, the skin is telling them that there's, you know, we don't know why you have pain and therefore there's not much you can do about it. And on the other hand, you have someone that we know why we, you have pain and there's not much you can do about this unless you fix the, the structure. Um, and, and it's a very interesting um, and difficult path for clinicians. Uh, of course, for the patients, it's very difficult to, to navigate through that, uh, but for clinicians as well. And with back pain, we can see that um, we see patients changing how they, um, they understand their problem. And they can see that sometimes, uh, or in, in various times, that pain is related to several factors and multiple domains in their life. So they can change the narrative to understand pain as a broader experience uh, influenced by several aspects of their life. Whereas with osteoarthritis, that's a much more difficult narrative to change because they are constantly dwelling on the fact that my scan shows degeneration and you can see the damage in my joint. And, and perhaps well, one of the things that we need to do is to, is to understand that from a different perspective. We keep talking about joint damage and tissue damage, uh, but having a, a health perspective on the joint is, is, a, is a perspective that gives patients 
um, more capacity to, to change. And if we think of the biology of the body, we're extremely organic and, and plastic and modifiable, and we adapt to most, the majority of things that we expose ourselves to as long as we give enough time and we do that in a graduated manner. So with a patient with back pain that doesn't have that clear structure, it may be, uh, you may have a stronger um, argument to say, look, we don't need to worry so much about the structure because it's sensitized, but we can target the modifiable factors. With a patient with knee away that they have a very clear change in their skin, trying to shift that narrative, um, it may actually create a barrier between you and the patient. And perhaps the change that we need to do is to tell the patient, do you understand what creates health within the joint that you have? So the structure that you have hasn't stopped adapting. You know, the structure that you have is actually amenable to change. You can't, as Sam said, we can't create more tissue. We can't build more cartilage in there. But the remaining of the structure that you have can become healthier. And how do we do that? We do that through movement, through loading, through building confidence in that leg, through strengthening your muscles. And to understanding that, you know, you can live a, a, a life to the full uh, despite having changes in your structure. And that, that is a broad comment. You know, some people uh, may try all those, uh, um, what is recommended uh, by the literature and may still find barriers and, and, and may need to have surgery, which in, in some cases it's extremely appropriate uh, and life-changing for some of these patients. So there, there is a... a uh, a change in, 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 in the patient's perspective of how much of a threat uh, it is that structure or, or that label to, to their life and their ability to achieve their goals, and also on the clinician to understand how they can convey that message in a way that doesn't create so much of a barrier. We kind of got three different examples here, I think. And one yeah. is, say, in the, in the back space where there's no diagnosis. Mm-hmm. which can create a lot of distress and, and this kind of stigma that maybe it's in my head, that, that my pain isn't real. It's not believable. Like there's a whole lot of distress around the absence of a label. Um, but then in Jamie's situation, he'd been told his discs were damaged. Um, they were degenerate, uh, narrow, you know, they weren't trustworthy. Um, and that created a lot of distress um, and avoidance and guarding of that body part. And I think what you're touching on there, JP, is that, to, for, a, for any tissue, be it back or knee, I never, so the idea of saying to Jamie, no, you don't have degenerate discs, that's not true, because he did. <laughs> you can see it yes. on his hand. And he had edema around the bone, which we know is associated with pain. That's like inflammation around those structures. But if you take the analogy, if you've got a sore wrist and you clench your fist all day and you don't move it, it puts load and stress and it makes those structures unhealthy. So the, having a different way of, of understanding your label and understanding that actually movement and, and loading and strength is what makes those tissues healthier, which is what JP is alluding to, gives a whole different dimension around the emotional response. So that means it's safe to engage with work. It's safe to move. It's safe to play with my kids. I can get back to boxing. I can gradually build the capacity to, to bend and lift and twist my back and lift weights again. And that's the journey that um, Jamie took. But if you ask Jamie if he had still had a degenerate discs, he would say, yeah, of course I do. But I don't fear those degenerate discs more. I just know that to keep my back healthy, I need to care for my general health. 
and the health of my back through good sleep, regular physical activity, a routine of movement and strength and mobility that allows him to do what he wants to do. And so that kind of triad around belief, but those things that um, both JP and Sam allude to around the meaning of that label is the key. Mm -hmm. Because um, that could be a, a meaning that uh, enables people to become much healthier in their life. And it can have positive spin-off to their cardiovascular health, their mental health, their social health, because they care for themselves in a broader sense. Um, and, and often that's a positive journey that you can see. But for others, it's a much harder journey where they're stuck with that view that I'm damaged. And they find it really hard to get past that. Mm. That's right. And stuck with the idea that there's nothing they can do to control that. It's changing those yeah. beliefs around controllability and, yeah. And, yeah. And, and beliefs about the future and how, how they're likely to track into the future. Yeah. And I think where it really becomes so tough, uh, and you know, we could talk a bit about that, is when they've then gone and had the fix. Uh, and you know, I can think of numerous cases I've seen a lady who's had two knee replacement, a, re, a knee replacement, and then a revision of a knee replacement. And she feels like her knee is, she can't trust the knee. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a knee that, that she hates. She literally says, I hate my knee. Uh, I don't trust it. I'm worse now than before I had this. And why has this happened to me? Because I've been fixed. I look good on scan, but it feels terrible. Uh, and, and that's really hard. Uh, for people who we who we, who have had the fix and it hasn't fixed them, uh, and and I know you know you've been involved in um, some work around that kind of that pathway that people can go down, Sam, who might have had a um, a joint replacement as a fix, and and it's not worked well for them. That's right, and so and 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 sort of the other scale of that when you were giving that example, I also recall talking to somebody who who sort of explained that they had been to a doctor for, for, for other reasons and for whatever reason ended up mentioning that they had some, some niggles in their knee and got a knee scan as well or an x-ray of the knee and showed that they had quite advanced osteoarthritis in that knee and oh, we'll refer you to the orthopedic surgeon and suddenly they find themselves going through surgery without really any understanding that that, that was necessary and suddenly then get themselves stuck in a pain pattern after surgery when really that pain wasn't necessarily you know, something that was at the forefront of their mind mm. pre-surgery, but it, 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 it developed this, this real sense of threat and oh, this is a serious problem that I have mm. here and it really adjusted behavior and, and really avoided any loading through that knee and, um, and got themselves really stuck after surgery. And the difficulty often is that from the surgeon's perspective that, you know, this, 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 this joint looks great and the, 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 the replacement perhaps was done you know, was a success. We've got objective signs of this on x-ray, but this person is still experiencing pain becomes really difficult when we've only got that biomedical model to draw on. Yeah. We've fixed the damage. So what now that becomes a really hard, hard. Yeah. And, and then I suppose the patient there becomes re-stigmatized, right? Yeah, exactly. Then they've yeah. got specific pain because they should be fixed yes. and they're not fixed. And it reminds yes. me of that paper that, um, I think it's called looks good, feels bad yeah. uh, around the lived experience of people who have had a joint replacement and they've been told your knee's good and they go, but it feels terrible. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that's kind of like that revolving door of like, I've got a label, I fix it. Now it's not fixed. What's yeah. my label? 
Yeah, and people often, I think, in that sort of situation, some of the literature shows just give up on care because they feel like they reached the end of the road there. They've, they've gone to surgery. That was their last resort, so there's nothing left for them now. So just sort of somehow mm. learn to put up with this, yeah. which, is, which is, you know, really obviously detrimental when they're sitting at home. They're not, they're not mm. engaging in physical activity. They're not living their life. Yeah. And, and that's really, really problematic and very sad. Mm. Yeah. And if we look at the at, at the start of that pathway of uh, you know seeking care to manage your your knee away, this misperception or misconception that if you load the joint will make it worse, so there's no point in trying. It kind of basically puts a barrier at the beginning of a journey that the literature actually tells us is the is the journey to get started on. So you know if you believe that you can't use that joint and it doesn't feel safe and it hurts when you do it. So why would you do it? So you and there's and that's what we we hear lots of stories of patients that are just doing time while they they can get to an age where they should get a, a knee replacement, and that's the tricky thing in, in in society because the narrative of of a knee replacement is very strong because it's quite a successful surgery. If you look in the in the in the spinal surgery space, there are not many surgical procedures that are, that are successful for for back pain. And, and, you know, if you look at back and leg pain, a different story. But for, for fixing the back, there are not many surgeries that are very su- successful. But for the knee, you know, there's many stories that, that are life-changing. So it's a very uh, strong uh, carrot in front of patients where they go, you know, you can try whatever you want, but at the end of the day, you're going to come back and knock on my door to get that knee properly fixed. Um, and some people might just, you know, if you have, if you if you have confidence in yourself and you have good coaching, you might not own that that advice and you might you know pursue uh, a new way of dealing with that problem. And if you find a way of reconceptualizing and understanding it differently, then go hang on a second. Actually, if I load my joint, it makes it healthier. It makes it better. Uh, and again, talking about you know we keep talking about joint health, but if we think about making someone healthier. You know, we, we go back to the joint and we go, you know, it's all about the structure. But how about how we are living our lives? You know, are we sleeping enough? Are we, uh, are we coping with the stress that we have in our, in our lives? Uh, are we um, socializing enough? You know, our, is our biology in a, in a context that is healthy? You know, are you eating healthy? Is your weight, are you in a healthy weight? So it's like a healthy approach to your uh, a healthy lifestyle to get better health in your in your joint as well. So it's like creating an anti-inflammatory context to be able to rehab that knee, and that involves your diet, your sleep, your stress, your physical activity levels, uh, your mood. Uh, so it's a much broader approach to to modify the biology of your body, and that's perhaps a, a, a part of the story that. Uh, not many people have access to. Yeah, I think that's so interesting, JP. And, and, you know, we have looked at, for example, people on the waiting list for surgery that haven't engaged in any exercise or weight loss mm-hmm. intervention or they really got to this end of the line before they have, um, they have attempted any of these self-management or, you know, non-surgical mm-hmm. interventions. 
Um, and, and it's really disturbing, as you say, when people think, well, I'll just, I'll just wait until it gets bad enough, until I'm old enough. Mm. But in the meantime, you know, 10, 15 years can sometimes pass and that person has really not been engaging in, in a lot of activity yeah. and all the health you know, consequences of, of that are just spiraling, spiraling, you know, out of control. Um, but I, do, I really like the idea of, of knee health as being the vehicle for living and, and by getting people, you know, to, to, to exercise with their knee, they, they are starting to live again. Mm-hmm. Um, and that participatory way of looking at, at this rather than a more impairment or disability way of looking at this and, and changing some of our language around that, I think health, um, participation, what we can do, not what we can't do is really, really important there. So the other thing I'd love you to draw on, Sam, is um, part of your PhD, track people over time. Uh, and so you took a group of people who are very disabled with back pain uh, mm-hmm. and who are very fearful. And you found that some people significantly improved over time and you kind of mapped some changes around some of their beliefs uh, but also some of those um, uh, responses to pain that all were associated with that improvement. Um, would you like to speak a bit about that? Yeah, so so this was, yeah, so I did a prospective study and there was no particular intervention involved, but it was just following people across time. Um, and it was interesting to see to see some people and, and quite confronting to see some people that, that went down a really, um, a really, challenging path of, of quite interventionist treatments and, and quite, um, quite extreme surgical interventions. And, and in some cases, um, you know, being quite uh, physically a lot more disabled by the end of that journey. But, but some of them at, at that point when perhaps they had, it was only a, a three month follow-up. Um, so in some cases I'd interviewed people that, that had, undergone recently undergone surgery and really were hopeful that they had been fixed and were were feeling like they were seeing early signs of of being better after having you know quite a significant back fusion for example or sacroiliac fusion we had a couple of people that had quite extreme combinations of surgeries um and quite confronting to see that that hope that they had now been fixed and that once they had got past that acute um post-operative period that they would start to feel better um, so that that was interesting to see people that had taken that journey, um, and for others that had taken more of a um, of a um, cognitive behavioural approach, and I, and I know that some people had had undergone cognitive functional therapy as well. Some people that were able to to make sense of their pain in a in a different way, um, and that was really interesting to look at as well. So the people that did feel that they had um, could get control over their their, their behavior control over their emotional responses to their situation. Um, and what was really key in those people that seemed to improve was really this idea of, of behavioral experimentation. Um, and so um, really having the opportunity to, to experience another way of, of thinking about their pain. Um, sometimes that seemed to occur. And I know, JP, you will you have um, done a lot more work in this at the case series, um, sort of more in-depth individual level, but certainly from people's descriptions of what was important from a very sort of broad patient perspective was this idea that they had experienced a new way of making sense of their pain that, that really did seem to be more helpful to them. Um, 
And that seemed to be a real key for the ones that three months down the track had made quite significant improvements in their life participation and their, in their situation um, just in that short period of time, really. But JP, maybe you want to talk a little bit more about. Yeah. And, and it kind of springs to mind a case that I've seen recently of a, um, he's about 64 years old, uh, has been playing tennis for, um, over 30 years and just before COVID he always played twice a week and once COVID hit he significantly reduced his physical activity you know he was stuck at home once he was allowed to play again he was really eager and went back on the on the court three times a week so he came back to the court with a higher frequency and deconditioned and then his knee got sore and he's got a history of five arthroscopies on that knee and he didn't have um, good strength and, uh, and his knee became sore and he had a skin and he was highly inflamed. And so he came to see me because he wanted to do some prehab before he went for surgery. And when I look at, uh, when I listen to his story, it became very apparent that there was a significant change in load in his story and that had sensitized that knee structure. And when you look at the, uh, at the habits that he had adopted because of that and because of the fact that he was going for surgery and he needed to protect and preserve that joint, um, he, he was putting a lot of extra load in that leg. He was co-contracting his muscles. He was avoiding the leg as much as he could. Uh, he was resting more. He became even less active. And when I asked him to rate his overall health, he rated himself as being you know, as unhealthy he had been. And he said, look, I feel like I aged 20 years in the last couple of months. Uh, you know, I'm walking slower. I don't recognize myself. My mood is low. So for this guy that was catching up with his mates twice a week and playing singles at the age of 60, um, he was doing, you know, he was living life to the full. He was getting on his bike and doing a bunch of things. And all of a sudden, you can see the impact on his overall health and mood and, and his emotional response to that. And... When I asked him to demonstrate to me how he would you know, get up from a chair, how he would walk, uh, he had adopted really unhealthy and unhelpful responses that became quite clear through experimentation that they were not helpful. And actually, when he was asked to engage his leg more and to put weight on that leg and engage his, uh, his whole body, uh, he actually realized that he was moving faster and he was feeling good. And a clear example was getting up from a chair. You know, he was literally getting up as a 75-year-old man when he was only 64 and not putting any weight and grunting and grinding. And when I asked him to use both legs and to engage his body and relax, uh, the more he did it, the, the faster he was moving within the session. And after he's done about 20 of those, he sat down and he's going, how come can this happen? How can I have a knee that is sore that I can see on a scan that I don't have any space and I'm booked for surgery and I can actually do this feeling younger, faster, and in an easier way? And so to him, that experience was really powerful because that made him challenge his beliefs and challenge the narrative that he had been presented so far. And I said, look, we, there's, there's, there's a journey to, to, um, for us to go through here, but this is quite positive. It's telling us that your body likes that. It likes movement as long as it's done in a graduated manner. And then we look at some of the things that he could do. 
and getting him to engage on the bike and getting him to be active again, you know, a couple of weeks later, he was way less sensitized and he was feeling better. And I'm not saying that this guy is going to go and never have a surgery in his knee, but he's looking back at becoming active and get back at being physically active twice a week as he was before, uh, despite the fact that he had changes in his knee. Now, the changes in his knee did not appear during the period of two months of, of uh, isolation of COVID. They've been there for a period of time, especially with a history of five arthroscopies in that knee. But they became highly sensitized because of the fact that he became deconditioned and then he went back at doing an activity that demands were way higher than his capacity. And so then, you know, that just kind of highlights the story of that uh, he came in with a really strong uh, narrative and a mindset, and he was taken through an experience that challenged that and that actually made him feel um, healthier and better within that session. And that was a, a, a way in to get him changing his, uh, reconceptualizing the way that he understood his problem. Yeah, so it sounds like he's like he's experienced it. That sort of experiential mm. learning was really, really important for him. And if I was to sort of kind of summarize, I suppose if we're, we're talking about beliefs today, perhaps mm. it sounds like those um, beliefs that his pain was due to those changes on his scan mm. resulted in those behaviors of avoiding the leg and then the leg getting more sensitive and more deconditioned. Yeah. Um, and, and um, maybe we can talk a little bit about how those, like I'm just thinking from the perspective of the listeners, like, right, okay, maybe some of the beliefs that I have about my pain, my knee pain or my back pain might not be that helpful. Mm. Um, how do people go through that process of, of going from the stage where, okay, I've, I recognize these beliefs might not be that helpful. What can I do about it? And, and how can I get, get there? Mm. So I'll put my hand up for that one. And I think one of the really difficult things um, to navigate as a health consumer, which I have been, uh, but also as a healthcare practitioner, is to how to interpret a diagnostic label. Mm. Um, and, and that's a really tough space. So, you know, we know, for example, that um, stuff on the scan, uh, some things are associated with pain and other things hold a less important association with pain. So it's, it's not kind of black and white. So there are some things like a fracture we know are strongly associated with pain. Um, we know that if you've got a disc prolapse with um, acute disc prolapse and radiculopathy linked to it with um, uh, changes in neurology, then that, that, those structural findings are strongly correlated with pain at that time. But if you look at people three or six months later, what you see on the scan is not so well correlated with pain. So what can be really structurally, a structural label that is associated with the pain can, can change into something else down the track. So nothing's static in the body, and that makes it really hard to navigate as a health consumer, but also as a healthcare practitioner, our responsibility is to say, you know, which of these things are associated with your problem and which of the things warrant you to go for further investigation and may be an indication for surgery? Uh, and then which of the things that are actually modifiable, like the examples that you gave, um, JP, um, where actual fact, and, and I think the patient story matched to the presentation, so important with that. Um, you know, so if you have had a trauma, there is an indication to make sure you haven't got a fracture. 
um, uh, you know, if you have got a neurological deficits, there is an indication that are progressive to send to go for a scan to, you know, to, to identify whether there are um, significant findings. But if you've got a history like you, you described, JP, where there is no trauma, it's just a period of lockdown where you've had inactivity and it's been a stressful time and, and maybe sleep has been disrupted and you've not been engaged in the same way and you develop pain and you get a diagnosis, then that's a whole different meaning. Uh, and that's the key thing I think that's hard for, um, for health consumers to navigate because they get a label which comes with a whole lot. You touched on that earlier, Sam, the whole belief system that goes with that label um, that doesn't, kind of fit with it's just about damage. It's other factors that become important. And I, I always go back to the patient's story as showing us the kind of pearls that are, are critical to understand the, the relationship between structure and pain and the other factors that play with it. Sorry, and what is, what, is, what is threatening? What is real threat? And what, is, what are we... What are we perceiving as being threatening exactly when, when they're perhaps not? And changing that, that, that meaning of threat mm. is something that, that we can do that is modifiable. Yeah. And, and also going back to what you said, Kev, you know, uh, about unhelpful beliefs and, and uh, shaping behaviours that people can take. It's also really important to, to, to highlight that a lot of these behaviours, they, they, they are triggered by a pain experience. So pain makes you want to protect a body part. Pain makes you, you know, tense up your muscles and maybe take the weight off a leg or avoid bending. Uh, and they may be initially helpful. Uh, and your beliefs and how you understand your condition will make you uh, continue or not with those behaviors. You know, as Sam pointed out before, it's a, it's a problem-solving um, uh, uh, behavior pretty much. So if I think that I will cause more damage to my knee if I put weight on it, it just makes sense that I'll continue to keep my weight off. And if I continue the weight off and I'm still sore and I'm doing less, you know, there's no reason why I would challenge that and try more. Similar to what with Jamie, you know, he's following all the rules of, the, of how you should care for your back, you know, or the rules that we think right, you know, keeping a straight posture, resting, you know, getting a strong core, and he was actually getting worse. So if you're following the rules and you're not only not getting better, you're actually getting worse, you, you know, it's, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but you'd feel too frightened to go and challenge that unless you get good coaching and coaching that actually provides you with an experience that allows you to challenge um, that behavior that you're taking. Because the, the, the behavior experiments that the Sam was talking about before, they, they are a hypothesis that we create based on the patient's story, and we test them to see if the behavior is actually helpful or unhelpful. And that's really important. Yeah. Maybe it's also maybe interesting to touch on the role of behavioral experimentation as well in, in our... Um, during the interview process as well, JP. So, so the idea that, you know, we have some beliefs, we, you know, it is important as clinicians that we really sit down and we understand the patient's story, that we are, um, you know, listening and, and or directly asking about what, what their beliefs around, around what they think is causing their pain and, and what they think you know, some of their responses and things. So we need that very, very careful history. Um, taking, but sometimes and some beliefs are explicit and you'll, you get that response from the patient, but, in other cases, 
we hold implicit beliefs as well that aren't easily um, elicited on asking. So, and, mm -hmm. and JP, you've done a lot of work in that space. Mm. Yeah, uh, that's uh, two very good points, Sam. And if I think on the, on the patient that I just described, during his story, he told me that, you know, after he got the diagnosis and he had been resting for a couple of weeks, he was just desperate to do some exercise. And he said, I just want to hop on the bike. And I just went for a bit of a bike ride. And doesn't matter. I'm going to have surgery in my knee. So I'm just going to go for it. And he actually felt better after it. And, but he didn't realize that until he was, yeah, I, he was asked to reflect on it. You know, so I said, you went for this bike ride and how did you feel afterwards? Well, it felt good. So what do you think that tells you? Well, I don't know, maybe actually using the knee is not so bad. Or maybe the bike is a good, good thing to do. So it, it's kind of the ex experimentation that you're talking about during the interview, Sam, which you are kind of highlighting some of the pearls that, uh, that the patient brings up in the story to um, pose that and ask them to reflect on that and say, does that really make sense with the behavior that you, or the action that you're taking? Um, so that's what one of the, the, the aspects. The other aspect is about um, we can ask people about what they believe in, and we can ask people why they do and why they take certain behaviors, or they adopt certain behaviors. Uh, but we can only express what we want to, but also we can only express what we are, are aware of. Uh, and some of these implicit beliefs, they, you know, they're really deep-seated. And we cognitively may not know the reason why they're there. Um, or, for instance, you may ask a patient, are you, do you avoid bending? And they might tell you they don't. Or are you fearful of bending? And they say they are not. But when you ask them to pick something up, and it may be a pen, and they're okay to do it, but it may be a a 10 kilo weight, which mimics uh, a box that they have to lift at work, they may not behave the same. And they may say, look, I, I don't want to do that. Or that gives me, um, uh, you know, the thought of doing that gives me anxiety. Or they behave in a different way when they do it. They might still do the task, but they guide themselves. They hold their breath or they brace themselves to, to be able to do it. So some of those behaviors may only be elicited when they are faced with a task that is either feared or it's provocative. Uh, and it's usually a task that it's something that they have to do, so it's related to work, or it's a value task, such as lifting a child or, um, or going for a run or, uh, or exercising. So it's really important to um, not only ask patients about what they think, and, and that, a great example of that is questionnaires. You can give a questionnaire to a patient uh, like we do in the practice. Every patient that comes in the door, they get a, a short questionnaire that gives us an idea of their, of their profile. Uh, and sometimes we get the questionnaire that doesn't look bad at all. But when you talk to the person and some, you allow them to tell their story or you expose them to some of the tasks that they are frightened of, uh, you can see that there's a mismatch between what's actually happening and what they portrayed on their questionnaire. And that's not to say that people are just, they don't want to tell you, is that sometimes they're not aware of some of those behaviors and they're quite implicit, as you said. So we, we've got lots of, sorry, were you going to say something else, JP? Yeah, I was going to say that one of the, the studies that we did, we also looked at some of the beliefs, not only of the patients, but we look at implicit beliefs of clinicians. Uh, and that, 
and that is a, a, a an interesting story in itself mm. because similar to you know we are part of this society and we as Sam said we've been uh, um, offered the biomedical model as the mainstream of our education and our training is really focused on the body and how the body works um, so when we ask some of these clinicians about their beliefs about situations such as bending forward, uh, you know, keeping your back straight or rounding your back in a more relaxed manner, uh, the majority of these clinicians said that it's safe to, to bend and lift with a round back. And, but when you actually put them through a, a, a test that um, requires them to or doesn't allow them to, to think much about their response, so it's like a reaction time task, their response is different. And it demonstrates that they have an implicit belief that actually bending and lifting with a round back is dangerous. So that demonstrates that um, we can hold these implicit beliefs as well. And they can be related to our training, can be related to the experiences that we have, and that may play a role in how we behave in the clinic. Yeah, and the advice that we provide. Yeah. Sorry, Debbie, I was just going to say, I'm also interested in the idea too that that we have sometimes, um, I think, these these set examples that we use or metaphors that we often draw on. And and sometimes I think we, we use the analogy of the body as machine a lot, for example, as a clinician. Mm. And so I think that in talking about nuts and bolts and, and mm -hmm. squeaky joints, and I think we can be saying, and, and, and perhaps we, we, we want to be conveying a different message, but we're using a language that really mm. perpetuates mm. some of those pre-existing beliefs around the body as a machine and around the biomedical, you know, damage. And, and I think that that's something that, that perhaps we need to, to think about very carefully as clinicians too, what message the patient is receiving when we're mm. using some of the, that language. Yeah. And, and, and some of these, um, let's call it mixed messages that we're giving. So we may tell the patient one story, but we may present ourselves differently and our body reactions might be different or we might say, you know, it's okay to safe and load and uh, we just got to make sure that cartilage is okay so we don't, you know, we don't create a new injury. Uh, so we just like leave these, you know, little bits of message that undermine this message, that, that the key message we're trying to convey. And similarly to patients, some clinicians may not be aware that they're doing that. And that's one of the things that we really wanted to bring up on this paper is some suggestions for clinicians to, to perform self-reflection. You know, and one of the ways of doing that is, you know, getting a colleague to sit in and, and watch you with a patient or film yourself where you can actually then look back and, and you know, you, you experience that clinical encounter and then you look at the video and you see the things that you, how your body reacted to the things that you said and some of these analogies that you're saying, wow, I can't believe I said that because that goes against the key message that I'm trying to give to this patient. Or someone told me, uh, you know, I booked for surgery and I might not have said anything. I might just look at the patient and go and make a, a non-verbal cue that gives my explicit um, belief about that attitude that the patient has taken. So these things are really important for us to, to reflect on and see if we actually practicing according to what, um, what we believe in. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, is, there, is there an alignment there with what we're, what we're saying and what we're doing and, and exactly. what the, 
what the evidence suggests as well. Yeah, well said. I just wanted to talk finally a little bit about um, some of the barriers to implementing these changes. Obviously, we know how important beliefs are um, in, in potentially perpetuating ongoing pain and, and persistent pain. And uh, a big part of, of this podcast is to try and, and empower people to, to create change and empower clinicians to create change. But what I wanted to, Sam, quickly, if you could talk a little bit about um, some of the barriers that are, that are around for that. I think some of them we've, we've, we've touched on. So some of these pre-existing models that we, 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 you know, automatic models we draw on as the, both the patient perspective, but also from the clinicians. Um, I know that we talk a little bit in paper around sort of funding models and, and more um, multidisciplinary care models. Uh, JP, maybe you a better place to, to discuss. Well, uh, I, I guess paper. one of the, um, you know, we have beliefs on both sides. We have, the beliefs of the patients and we have the beliefs of the clinicians themselves. Uh, and these can be barriers on itself. But one of the key things that can become a barrier is uh, where patients receive mixed messages. Uh, so they might come into a clinical encounter where they had a positive experience, they've been given a, a new way of conceptualizing their problem. Maybe it's a broader perspective. Uh, you know, we're talking about uh, their lifestyle, their diet, you know, their weight. And they come home and they tell their, their partner or they tell their family members and they say, well, but did he look at your scan? Did he actually see the degeneration in your knee? You know, you know that's all well and good, but you're, you're still going to need that knee replacement. So you can get them mixed message or that counter belief within your, your, your family group of uh, uh, partners and friends. And, uh, or you may come out of the, the session and get a really positive um, uh, new way of thinking and you go back to see your doctor or you go back to see your, your surgeon and, and you get a, a mixed message again. You say, well, you know, at the end of the day, you do have degeneration and what we know is that this is a disease that will keep progressing. And that can be a massive barrier for patients because they, are, they feel quite vulnerable. They're going from you know, the physio, the GP, the surgeon, the, uh, the exercise physiologist, uh, and they are getting different types of information. And that can be really tricky for patients. Uh, and, and they can really impact on their, on their ability to, to, to move forward. Uh, and, you know, what Sam touched on around uh, funding, uh, it's difficult sometimes for patients to, to have a, a team that cares for them. Uh, and, and even when they do have that uh, and they have access to it, the communication within that team uh, has to be quite unified to deliver the same message because otherwise the patient just feels pulls, pulled apart and they don't know who to believe. And then they start doing their own research, which might end up in something different again. Uh, so these are some of the, 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 um, the things that consumers are uh, are dealing with and, and that's why it's so important for them to have places where they can go and they can get credible information that considers the evidence and translates it in a, in a, uh, in a um, digestible uh, way so they can understand and they can question that. Uh, and we talk about um, having a, 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 like a, a societal change in how we understand pain and Sam alluded to this before we are fighting with 400 years of of looking at, uh, at, at this single view of a problem 
but the more we spread the message, the more uh, patients will feel empowered and they may come to a visit and they will question if the care they're receiving is actually based on evidence. You know, is that really what suits my, my story? So these are some of the things we, we bring in the, uh, in the, in the paper to, to discuss. I don't know if you want to add anything, Pete. Um, you know, I think you've covered a number of the, the factors there, JP, and I'm, um, you know, I, I kind of look at my clinical experience and certainly what we know from research, and we know that um, some people are more vulnerable than others, mm-hmm. and that vulnerability often lies with people who have had significant social disadvantage, um, mm-hmm. people who um, don't have good social support, people who don't have a lot of confidence in their ability to make good decisions or make decisions for their health. They want to be fixed. So it's too hard. Um, and often I think the health system promises, they give them simple um, um, uh, and not evidence-based um, uh, diagnostic labels, which come with the promise of a fix. And so often, you know, the fix is not, it, it's, it doesn't happen for many people. Uh, and, and that's the trap, I think, is that what, what you highlighted, Sam, was that understanding of pain is way more complex than just you know, pain equals damage. And in many cases, it's not related to damage at all. It's related to tissue being sensitive for a whole lot of reasons. And that's the hard part of navigating that process. And I think having, like you said, a trusted clinician who is evidence-informed, who puts you as a patient in control, educates you and puts you in control of your health journey and gives you honest um, uh, information so you can make good choices that are informed and that, that are evidence informed about that pathway and takes you on a journey to put you in control is the key. Uh, um, but so often that doesn't happen in a health environment that is um, based on, you know, getting its income from, you know, quick fixes, sadly. Yeah. yeah. yeah certainly it's a... Uh, uh, it can be cheaper for the patient to go on and have surgery if they have private health, if they go through the public system, other than going and getting evidence-based care of exercise, education, weight loss. Uh, and that's, that's tricky on itself. Uh, and perhaps I think that it's important to, 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 to make clear here is that we are not always advocating against surgery. We, that's, not the, uh, that's not the point. Uh, the point is to is to advocate that people get uh, what is recommended based on evidence, uh, and that people get a chance to try that uh, and try that for enough time um, before they go on to have surgery. So I have a, a case of a patient who uh, was really unhealthy, um, and you know she had uh, several comorbidities. Uh, she was overweight. She wasn't sleeping well. Uh, and she had significant knee pain, and she was told that she needed surgery. But she was scared of going for the surgery because um, she heard about, or in the, the consult, she was told about all the, the risk factors and all the potential adverse uh, effects that could happen with the surgery. And she said, look, with my health and where I, where I am at the moment, that may be me, and I'm scared of that. So that created an opportunity for her to look at her overall health and go through a program where she strengthened herself, she got healthier, she was sleeping better. Uh, so she ticked a lot of the boxes 
Um, and at the end of that journey, uh, actually a knee replacement was, it was, was a good thing for her. But she went into that knee replacement with, uh, without the unhelpful habits that she had. She went in with, with way less weight and much more confident in herself and the outcome of the surgery. She had the surgery and she did really well. And she went, become, she became active. But a lot of that lifestyle was installed before the surgery. And then she just picked up after the surgery because she put herself in a really good condition. And so these are really important things that uh, we're not here to, to tell people that they shouldn't have it. We're trying to identify, you know, when should you have it and, and who should have it. And that's, that's a tough question to, to answer. Uh, and that's where the, the, this, the, this partnership in the, in the clinical encounter is really important uh, between clinician and the patient and the rest of the team. That's right. We just, the best way we can keep people moving mm. and how can we do that as clinicians? Yeah, yeah exactly. That's awesome. Um, guys, I kind of want to start wrapping it up now. Or, or, um, we've, we've talked a lot about how, how these beliefs and, and lots of like broad topics around societal changes and things like that. So I think that's really valuable for us to start um, thinking deeply about this sort of stuff. Um, Sam, well, all of you, or you three, you, that, that paper is, is fantastic in the British, uh, sorry, the um, Brazilian Journal of Physical Therapy. Um, and the the research that you guys are doing is contributing heaps to um, us advancing our knowledge and, and as part of this obviously podcast it's about trying to translate that um, Sam you've done a lot of work in hearing the stories of patients um, going through this sort of tough journey um, and done a lot of research working with a variety of different professions and obviously um, pain for body areas people with um, pain in different areas I kind of wanted to see if you could leave the listeners with a couple of take-home tips um, in terms of sort of encompassing um, what uh, what the common pitfalls are when it comes to um, these these traps or cycles that people can get in in that aren't that helpful. Well, like I think at a very certainly based on sort of some of the work I've done, I think it's really important that we we do learn to obviously listen to our patients, that we listen to those stories. That and I think the common sense model is a nice framework for us to maybe start doing that. It helps, I think, as clinicians to have a roadmap of, of, of how can I be listening to this story? What should I be listening for? And I think really listening to, to asking about those, those key belief dimensions. What do you think is causing your problem? You know, what do you think is your problem? What, what, what label have you, what diagnosis have you been given? What does that mean to you? Um, you know, what, what do you think caused that? What do you think the consequences of that are going to be? What can we do about it? What are you doing about it? Um, and how long do we think this is going to last? I think listening, asking those questions, listening for any um, maybe unhelpful beliefs that they're telling you, listening for any gaps in their understanding, the things that aren't making sense for them, is maybe a good place to start for clinicians mm -hmm. not feeling very comfortable about, you know, we, we do read about all these different beliefs in the literature. It can be difficult to understand what are the key things that I need to be listening out for. So I think that that's a helpful start for, for many people um, to begin with. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, I think I'll, I'll add a couple of things there and say, that for, for patients to feel comfortable questioning the, their clinicians. You know, when you go to a 
to whoever you're seeing, I think you got to think before, what are the things that I want to be able to do that I can't do because of this? What are my goals? Where, where, do, where do I want to be? And what do I see as the barriers? And what is my understanding of this problem? And when you go to that session, you question those things and make sure that you live with, a, with something that it's, it's clear to you of what your problem is. And if it's not clear and or the clinician doesn't have time, uh, maybe ask for a place where you can read about it that that clinician thinks provides you with credible evidence. Um, and in that session, if you don't feel like things are making sense to you, question that and ask why. Because uh, some, some patients come into the clinic and they may feel that they just need to take the information. And what we're saying is, the absolute truth. And, and we learn a lot from listening to the patients. We learn a lot from being questioned and challenged. And when they question us, or we realize that we haven't made things as clear or we could make things clearer. Uh, and that's really helpful in both ways. So it's like uh, feeling able to do that, I think would be uh, my, my tip. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else you guys want to talk about? Pete, yeah, did you have another tip? Finally on that, um, I think I think it's really hard for people to navigate the internet. You know, people will often go to the internet when they're feeling like what's going on here. And um, and there are some credible places to go to, like the Pain Health website mm. um, is a really great website that is designed for consumers um, that's written to for their voice and that captures the stories of people like Jamie who give a broader understanding of pain that, you know, as Sam said, that pain does not, it may equal damage, but in so many time, cases it doesn't. And when and damage heals and often pain doesn't go away once you're healed. It's a different kind of pain. It's got a different kind of meaning. And that idea of if it hurts, it, it, and it is, if you're broken, then there may be a period that you need to rest. But if it's not broken, don't rest it. <laughs> you know, it is safe to engage with mood and activity and build your confidence to do the things in life that are important for you. And those are the things that are really important that we don't kind of hold a label that traps us in a prison um, and that limits our ability to engage with life. Um, I, I, that's where we often see the, the real harm done around some of those belief labels um, is the consequences and the, the distress that can can leave people in. Yeah, awesome. Thanks very much for your time, Sam, especially it's a nice late over there in Queensland. Um, awesome to chat to you all. Uh, fantastic work with all the research that you're doing. And um, yeah, we look forward to keeping in touch. Thanks, Kev. Thanks, Thanks Sam. So there you have it. Another episode of the Empowered Beyond Pain podcast. My take-homes were... The beliefs we have about our body heavily influence how we use it and how we feel about it. So if our beliefs are misguided or inaccurate, our actions and emotions will follow suit, potentially resulting in a negative spiral of more pain and functional loss. The common beliefs about pain, and I'm talking particularly about persistent pain here, are a little, well, a lot, outdated. Sam talked about a 400-year-old model of pain that is still widespread in the community, something we're trying to change. And with acute trauma, tissue damage is likely to be the key driver of pain. But the longer that pain goes on, the more that our behaviours contribute to driving the pain. And what drives those behaviours? Well, it's usually our beliefs. 
Next week, we start our in-depth discussion of the 10 back pain facts discussed in episode 4 and 5, and let me tell you, we have some spectacular guests lined up, including patient voices and world-leading researchers. Show notes, as always, are available at www.bodylogic.physio forward slash podcast. And if you like the content and want to show your support, the best way is to leave a review or share the podcast. Until next time, though, remember to ask, is there more to pain than damage? Please note, what you heard on this episode of Empowered Beyond Pain is strictly for information purposes only and does not substitute individualised care from a trusted and licensed health professional. If you would like individualised high-value care for your pain, sports or pelvic health problem, head to the BodyLogic website and make an appointment. Theme music generously provided by Fervin and Cash. <laughs>